You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn into the book of Revelation to Revelation chapter 8. I want to read back through uh, where we've been since the month of August in regards to the trumpet judgments, just because it's been a while since we did our last application Sunday. We've covered a lot of material uh, since then, and so I want us to refresh ourselves a little bit about where we've been. So in Revelation chapter 8, uh, verse 6, and I'm just going to read through in entirety the passages of Scripture that we've been looking at over the past almost two months now, I guess. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpet that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and it was, uh, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons, 
and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then I saw another angel, a mighty angel, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like a sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpets call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues or languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So we've covered a ton of material over the past couple of um, months, and, and there's a lot of confusion that probably still um, exists there for us in trying to understand these passages of Scripture, and what do they mean for us, and how do we take those and learn from this and how do we apply this. And so I wanted to, again, through our application study, kind of step back, recap a little bit about where we've been, and then I want to give you three specific things to do this week as a point of application. So uh, I want to get real practical at the very end. But just to kind of go back and look at where we've been from a summary sentence standpoint, we looked at those four trumpets um, right off the bat that really deal with um, the the um, judgments upon the earth and kind of the earth deteriorating. And so we said Christians can be encouraged by both the current and future destruction of the earth by seeing it as a sign of the outworking of God's sovereign purposes to defend his people and to warn 
his enemies. You'll remember those trumpets flowed right after that section where we talked about the, the prayers of the saints going up and God responding to their prayers for vindication. So as we see the earth deteriorate around us, we, we can find an, uh, hope and encouragement in seeing uh, that being a part of God's plan playing itself out. And, and his plan is to defend his people and to warn his enemies. And so throughout the trumpet judgments, we've seen judgment, we've seen death, but we see life continuing after with the opportunity for repentance. And so God uses these things around us, the destruction of the earth, to work out his plans to defend us and to warn those who are not currently his children. Um, We looked at the trumpet number five. We said as evil forces rise in advance, we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory. So as we looked at the um, the scorpions, uh, the, the stings, and the, uh, the locusts, and uh, just this, this hard-to-understand picture of judgment that God brings seems to be motivated by satanic forces, uh, but the encouragement and the reminder to us is that God controls those things, that as evil forces rise in advance, in whatever form and shape they end up taking, God controls them and God uses them for his glory, which is the end goal of history. We looked at number six. When judgment comes upon this earth, God will do so sovereignly by directing the events. He will do so justly by providing sufficient opportunity for repentance. We talked about God warning the earth through those woes, through that angel that was flying around and and giving that warning. Probably not in that format, but God is continuing to give warnings through even our proclamation of the truth to people around us. God is warning people of coming judgment. And so God directs his judgments directs those events, does so justly, um, and he gives opportunity for repentance. Um, Which then led us into a discussion about idolatry, um, because the judgment falls on those who remain in their idolatry. And so we said, because the Bible treats idolatry with such seriousness, it's imperative that we identify the threat of idolatry in our own lives, and we take steps to ensure that we continue to give glory to to the creator rather than the to creation. All right, so idolatry is a big issue throughout Scripture. It's what God judges in the Old Testament. It's what we see God judging in the New Testament. We're all prone to idolatry. We're all prone to give undue credit to the creation rather than the creator. Um, We want to worship the creation rather than the one who gives creation to us. And so it's an ongoing battle, an ongoing fight for us to give appropriate worship and appropriate attention to our creator. I've been challenging you since we did this sermon to identify idols in your life, um, to repent of those idols, but also to identify the threat of idolatry in your life. Even if you don't have active idols in your life right now, what are the potential idols that exist? What are you prone to give undue affection and attention to? um, and, And how can you even communicate that to others from a point of accountability? So Uh, We looked at that at the very end as we saw God's judgment falling upon idolatry. We then looked at the bittersweet scroll from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We talked about us having a responsibility to find satisfaction in the authoritative, mysterious, and certain word of God by striving to assimilate it into our lives and into the lives of others. So we talked a lot about trying to feast upon the word ourselves, spending time in God's word, eating it, uh, ingesting it, assimilating it into our lives to where it affects the way that we live. Um, specifically even looking at it from an example in our own life uh, from in the Vincent household, how going through a difficult trial, uh, it ought to automatically draw us back to the things that we know about Scripture. 
um, that that's the connection point that we study, we spend time in God's word, we learn about him so that it connects to our everyday life. And we saw that through the bittersweet scroll that John eats at the end of the chapter. And then last week we looked at the two witnesses. Um, Our mission is to proclaim a message of repentance and to accept delayed vindication, realizing that his glory is more important than our immediate safety. And so last week we talked about how God protects us spiritually and physically, right? He always protects us spiritually. He always guards and protects us from an eternal standpoint. Sometimes he protects us physically, and we connected it to the two witnesses and how God protected them physically until their ministry came to an end, until they had fulfilled their role, until they had completed their ministry that God had given them. They were, they were immune. They were protected. And it's only at that point that the beast is able to rise and bring them to their death. But again, even in their death, their, that hope of resurrection is, extend, is extended to us. And so God's glory more important than our immediate safety. In the meantime, we have a message of repentance that we're to proclaim, realizing that there's coming a day where we will be vindicated, even if we're rejected as we try to share our faith. As we did with the seven seals, I want to give you quick uh, seven takeaways from the seven trumpets. And even though we haven't covered the second or the seventh trumpet, I want to go ahead and give you seven things to take away from that long passage of scripture that I just read. So we'll actually jump into the last trumpet next week. Um, but wanted to go ahead and give you seven takeaways from the seven trumpets. We did this with the seven seals. Um, We said we should long for the opening of the seven seals. They reflect God's sovereign plans. Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. God controls and limits all evil to come. God shows great value to the church. Missions must be a priority. All the effects of sin will be removed. The end will come in response to prayer. Those were our seven takeaways from the seven seals. Let's look real quick at seven takeaways from the seven trumpets. Then I'm going to give you three things to do this week as a point of application. All right, number one, God is consistent, responsive, and merciful in judging mankind for his sin. Again, there's a lot of things that are still confusing about this section of Scripture, but these are seven clear things that I think we can step away and say, okay, I either know this now or my knowledge of this has been reinforced by this passage in Revelation. God is consistent, meaning God continues to judge sin in the same ways as he has in the Old Testament. Ever since God initiated his creation, began to work through mankind with Adam and Eve, all the way up to where we are today, God has consistently been judging sin in the same way. The same things that bothered him in the Old Testament, that grieved him in the Old Testament, are the same things that grieve him in the New Testament. There's a consistency in God's view of sin. It's responsive in that God is responding to man's rejection of him as creator. Same as in the Old Testament. Mankind rejects God, worships the creature rather than the creation. Romans 1 documents that for us. It's exactly what he's doing until the end of time. We look ahead in the book of Revelation, and God's judgment falls on those people who will not release their idols. He's consistent. He's responsive. But we also see God's mercy in his judging, right? We continue to see God merciful in his judgment, that he continues to offer opportunities for repentance. He continues to extend his grace. Uh, Even when he brings temporary judgments upon the earth, it's not on everyone, right? It's meant to be a warning to those that are in their sin. And so God's consistent, responsive, and merciful. Number two, and some of these things are carrying over from the seals, and that's, again, why I think what we see is a a recycling of a lot of the things that we see in the seal judgments because some of the same things are being talked about in the trumpet judgments. Specifically, number two, 
that God controls the greatest evils for good purposes. God controls the greatest evils for good purposes. So if he controls the greatest evils, he certainly controls the lesser evils that we may experience in our life today. The trials, the temptations, the difficulties, the struggles. God uses those for good purposes. He controls the greatest evils. So whether it's a locust army or whether it's um, uh, uh, an anxiety about our job situation, God controls both. God controls both for his good purposes. Whether it's, um, it's the earthquakes and the, and the hail and, the, and the, the storms that are coming in the book of Revelation, or whether it's a personal sickness that we're dealing with, God controls all of those things for his good purposes. All right, we see that in the book of Revelation. Number three, God's judgment falls on those who give their worship and focus to idols. God's judgment falls on those who give their worship or their focus to idols. Those who, inv- who, who invest their lives in the things that are passing away, God's judgment falls upon those. You continue to see that through Revelation. It was some of the warnings that were given even to the seven churches. Um, and it's continuing through the seven trumpets that God's judgment falls on those who worship creation rather than the creator. Number four, the gospel frees us to enjoy creation as a gift rather than a God. The gospel frees us to enjoy creation as a gift rather than a God. First Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 is a passage that we highlighted as we were working through this that Paul talks to the Thessalonians and he says, I know the, re- the, the reputation or the reception that we had amongst you because you have turned from idols to worship the living God. Prior to our coming, prior to our gospel presentation to you, you worshiped idols. You've turned from idols now, you now worship the living God. And so the gospel reminds us um, that it frees us to enjoy creation as a gift rather than a God. And, And I wanted to stress that again because we talked about the fact that Christianity is not about not enjoying creation, right? Like we could go the the wrong way and say, okay, we can't enjoy anything about creation. To find any joy in creation would be wrong versus finding far too much enjoyment, finding far too much satisfaction in creation. Like there's two extremes that we can go to there, not enjoying creation, enjoying it too much. Scripture wants us to find that happy medium where we enjoy the creator through his creation, right? That God gives creation to us so that we can better understand who God is, so that we can better understand his character and his love. And, and you know, we even talked about just the, the picture of marriage. God gifts marriage to us so we can better understand Christ in the church. The gospel frees us to enjoy creation, frees us to enjoy relationships um, as a gift rather than a God. Number five, God's word should be a mystery to us due to a lack of revelation rather than a lack of study. Right? We talked about as that scroll was being given to John that there's some things that aren't written down for us. Right? The thunders respond, but God says, don't write that down. That's part of my plan that's not going to be written down. And we have to take uh, you know, a pause and a reminder here that we just don't have all the pieces. God chooses not to tell us everything. Right? We don't know when Jesus is coming back. There's a mystery that exists about God's word. But as I shared with you for the past couple of weeks, I don't want to get to heaven and find out things that I should have known here. I don't want to be surprised in heaven by things that I should have been aware of here, things that were told to me in God's word that I simply neglected. So God's word should be a mystery to us due to a lack of revelation rather than a lack of study. 
All right, number six, while God always protects us spiritually, his physical protection only lasts until our ministry is complete. God always protects us spiritually. We talked about how God keeps us believing that the perseverance aspect of being a Christian, that we don't fall away from the faith because God seals us with his Holy Spirit. He keeps us progressing in the faith. It's that assurance of salvation. God protects us spiritually. He's not going to let um, Satan or his forces harm us spiritually. He talks about him sealing us and protecting us. Uh, things can't harm those that are part of God's people. But his physical protection is only guaranteed for a time. Um, he doesn't always promise physical protection. There's martyrs all through the book of Revelation. There's the promise of martyrdom all through the book of Revelation. So his physical protection only lasts as long as it's part of his plan. And at, at different points in history, his plan for us expires. Our ministry is now complete. What he wanted us to do has been done. He calls us home. And so always protects us spiritually, sometimes protects us physically, um, but does so with specific intent. And the last thing, number seven, my life should be so committed to the gospel that for some I become a torment with my death being a relief to the enemy. My life should be so committed to the gospel that for some I become a torment with my death being a relief to the enemy. That's the picture that we get with those two witnesses, right? They are proclaiming the gospel to the point that unbelievers describe them as a torment to them. They're not, they're not doing anything that should be classified as a torment from this side of things. They're proclaiming Christ's love and Christ's coming judgment. But that's a torment to the one who wants to remain in darkness, who wants to run from the light, who doesn't want to have their sin exposed. And we should be so committed to the gospel. We should be so fearless in our presentations of the gospel that we don't fear how someone might react to us. That we recognize there's going to be some people that don't respond well to the message, and that should not cause us not to share it. These two witnesses shared it to the point of their death. It got them killed. They were a torment to these people. The enemy was relieved. They throw a party. They're giving gifts to each other because they're glad for these two to be gone. Our lives should, should model that, should mirror that. We should be so committed to the gospel that for some we become a torment to them with our death being a relief to the enemy. Those are seven takeaways, I think, seven clear things that have real practical application for our life as we move away from the trumpets and we move deeper into Revelation. God is consistent in his judgment. He's merciful in his judgment. He controls the greatest evils for good purposes. He's going to judge those who worship idols. The gospel frees us from idolatry. God's word is something we can study. We can know him, even though some things remain a mystery to us. God always protects us spiritually. We can take great comfort in that. We can also take great comfort in that he will physically protect us as long as, as he desires to use us here on this earth. And then as we wait for our ministry to be complete, we should live in such a way that, that at times we are a torment to people because we're so gospel-minded and so gospel-focused. All right, so that's more of a summary over the past uh, six to eight weeks, uh, things that we've covered, um, some takeaways there from the seven trumpets. And now, like I said, I want to get real practical with three things that I think we can all do this week, immediate practical application from the things that we've been talking about. All right, I want to start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
verse 1. This is Paul looking back into the Old Testament to warn those in the New Testament about how serious God takes idolatry. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I mean, this, this right there should be enough warning for us. He's saying, man, our forefathers, talking about the Israelites, man, they all had the exact same advantage. They all followed that cloud, that representation, that presence of God that led the people towards the promised land, cloud by day, fire by night. They all were underneath that cloud moving towards the promised land, right? They all passed through the Red Sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They were all exposed to the miracles that took place in the wilderness. They were all gifted uh, food and drink to sustain them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Despite having all the same advantages, some of them don't get it, right? There's the grumbling and the complaining and the idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai. It says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Like their, their, their lives have become about eating and drinking and playing. They've given themselves to idolatry. It says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Man, for, for those with kids, if they ever complain about why do we study history? Why do we need to look at history? Why does it matter what happened in the past? I mean, this is one of the examples I shared with our students at Trinity recently. I was talking about why we study science, why we study history, why we study math, how that helps us to know God better. Man, history is the easy one. History, we learn from the mistakes of others. God writes these things down so that we know not to make the same mistakes. He says, learn from these examples. Don't do the same things. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He says, be careful that you don't lump yourself in the wrong group. Don't lump yourself in the group that gets it, that's not prone to idolatry. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Man, it's such a crucial factor in the life of a Christian. Are we giving ourselves to idols or are we giving ourselves to Christ? So the first major point of application that I want to give you this week centers around idolatry. Do this week. Make sure your accountability group understands the major idol threat in your life. If you haven't done this already, I, it would be hard to say that you're applying this in the context of this church until you do this. I think this has to be communicated within our accountability groups because it says you're going to be tempted with it. God's faithful and will let you be tempted, won't be able to be tempted beyond your ability. 
With the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, flee from idolatry. Man, the way we've set that up in our church is to, to have other people help you do this, to fight temptation, to flee idolatry. I think this is a great way to apply this within the context of this church, to make sure your accountability group understands the major idol threat in your life. How can they be praying for you? How can they help hold you accountable? How can they help identify when you've given yourself to idolatry even? Man, it says, don't think that, that you're free from this. Like, don't think that you're exempt from this. Let, let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I'm not going to go so far as to say, like, you have to do this or it's, like, sinful or disobedient. I'm not, I'm not anywhere near saying that. What I am saying is that you can't say, I'm not going to do that because it's not a problem. Because Paul warns against that. He says, don't be the person who says, I'm standing, I don't need, I don't need any help in this, because you may be the exact person to fall. So what I will say is that if you're not going to do this, You've got to find some other creative application for this in your own life so that you're not guilty of being the one who says, man, I'm standing just fine. I'm not going to fall. And there's great warning here. There's great warning here. Don't be the person who thinks they can't fall. Learn from the example of these others who fell into idolatry. Know that God makes it possible for us to escape it, but we have to flee from it. Okay? So I don't know when your accountability groups are meeting this month. Um, so, I mean, you could even wait until the next time that you meet. But, man, I think this has got to be a priority. This has to be a priority to, to first step back and self-assess and say, what, are, what am I prone to give myself to that's not Jesus? What am I prone to set up in my life that's an idol? Maybe in the past, maybe currently. Maybe you've identified it as a potential future threat. To share that with other believers and say, man, hold me accountable to not worshiping this in my life. It could be something physical. It could be something... Uh, non-physical. It's up to you to kind of work through what does that look like in your own life? What's the temptation in your life? What are you prone to give yourself to that would be an idol? All right. Second thing, um, in regards to assimilating the word, studying the word, eating the word, ingesting the word, pursuing a knowledge of Christ through the word. I want to read a couple passages of scripture to you before I hit on the application point. First of all, Philippians 3, 8. And, I'll, and let me preface this by, we met as elders this past week, um, and we are now starting the conversations with individuals about some of the survey responses that we got. So whole host of topics that we covered in this survey we want to sit down and meet with people individually about some of the things that kind of jumped out to us. Hey, this warrants a conversation. Let's talk to this person about this. One of the questions was um, whether you're equipped to study the Bible on your own. And we had some people that say, hey, I, I need help in this area. Um, and so I want us to, I think everybody needs to attack whether their lack of study in their own life is based on a lack of equipping or a lack of desire, right? Are we making the effort to study God's word or are we using the fact that nobody has ever taught us as a potential crutch for why we don't study the Bible? Let me give you some verses. Philippians 3.8. Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right? Paul talks about this being his pursuit. I want to know Jesus and everything else I count as loss 
in comparison to knowing Jesus. So it had great priority in his life, all right? John 15, 11 Why, why do we study the Bible? Why do we, need to, why do we need to read and reflect and meditate? Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you. So kind of the stuff prior to this in chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Man, God has intentionally chosen to write things down in Scripture to increase the joy that we feel in everyday life. That's what it's written down for, right? Paul says, man, everything else is lost in comparison to knowing Jesus. Jesus says, I have spoken things. Those things have been written down for you to fulfill your joy, to, to, to increase your joy. John 16, 1, right after this chapter I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Man, why should we prioritize being in the word during the week? Because Jesus says the things that have been written down have been written down to keep you saved. It's how God protects us spiritually. He always protects us spiritually. He does it through his word. He's written these things down so we don't fall away. So that when times get tough, we don't doubt God's goodness because we have immersed ourselves in the word and we identify God's goodness and his control over evil in our life at all times. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In the context here, it's talking about the gospel and how people have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. But man, the gospel continues into our life even after we're believers, right? And here it's talking about the fact that the words of Christ are meant to increase our faith, right? So, so time given to the word means that we get to know Jesus, we get to have our joy become more full, we get to be kept secure in our faith, our faith increases by being in the word. Romans chapter 15, verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Man, for us, this is the entire Bible, but at the context of when it's written, it's talking about the Old Testament, right? We've talked before, don't go to sleep on the Old Testament. It's not old and outdated. It is still very, very relevant as it's part of God's complete word. Paul says, whatever was written in former days, especially the Old Testament at that time, was written for our instruction. Why? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I pray all the time when I, when I preach and teach that God would bring about conviction where needed, but also encouragement where needed. Why? Because that's why we've been given the scriptures. We've been given the scriptures to increase our hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement, see the connection that's made there with Paul? He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, endurance and encouragement. And then we find out those two things describe God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, the scriptures are given to us to increase our hope, to increase our encouragement, to increase our harmony with each other. Man, how do we learn to live with each other and love each other and forgive each other? It's through God's word. It increases our unity and our harmony, Paul tells us here. But I know, I think some of us, 
we don't prioritize being in the Word, and we, we use excuses for, I don't even, I don't, I don't know how to study the Bible, like I've never been taught or equipped. And I think those are, are, are poor reasons to stay away from God's Word. We have to prioritize it, and we have to jump in there and, and, and start doing it to even learn what's needed from an equipping standpoint. So what I want you to do this week in regards to Bible study, I want you to attempt to study God's Word. If you're not doing this, Attempt to study God's word at least one day this week and write down what you wish you were able to do that you weren't able to do during that time. Man, you may say, I sat down, I prioritized the time, I sat down and, man, I didn't even read because I didn't even know where to go, right? Like that would be your one thing you weren't able to do. I didn't know where to go when I went, when I went to study the Bible. Because as elders, if we sit down and we're trying to talk with you and give feedback to you based on your survey responses, for those that said, hey, I need more equipping in this area, I mean, it would be super helpful to even know where you need to have, where we need to even start in the equipping process. So I want you to, I want you to sit down and, and just try to do it without any help right now. Sit down and try to study the Bible. You may get to the point where you're like, I don't even know where to go. And that's what you write down. Hey, I prioritized it. And I got it so far as to getting my Bible out and I had nowhere to even start studying, didn't know where to go. You may go the next step. You may say, hey, I sat down, I prioritized it. I knew where I wanted to read. I read it and I had no idea what that even said. No idea, no clue. So what you wish you were able to do that you weren't able to do is to read it and understand it. You may be able to read it and study it a little bit, but you have no idea what that means for you. Like you understand it, like you understand what's being said here, but what does it really mean for you? What are you supposed to take away from it? All right, you may be all over the spectrum. We'll, we will be all over the spectrum for those that really aren't uh, disciplined right now in their own personal study. But man, for the elders to really have a conversation with you about that, it would necessitate you saying, I've tried to do this and I get stuck at this point. This is where I, I'm, I'm unequipped to go further. And regardless if you responded to the survey or not, what I would love is for you that aren't studying the Bible, who have been trying to figure this out and you just feel unequipped, to do this this week and then to respond by sending me a message that says, here's where I got this week. Hey, I did it. I applied what you said. I tried to study the Bible on my own. I'm in the camp that feels ill-equipped to do so. This is as far as I got and I didn't know what else to do. I knew where to read. I knew how to understand it, didn't know how to apply it or I didn't even know where to start to read. Or I, I read it, but I didn't understand it. And don't feel, don't feel a sense of pride that says, well, I'm not going to admit that. Like, I'm not going to admit that I don't know how to study or I struggle with my studies. Man, it would, it would bring me great joy to get an email this week from anybody in here asking for specific help in studying the Bible. Okay? So don't let pride hold you back from doing it. Know that you'll make my joy complete this week if you send me an email saying, hey, I tried to do what you asked us to do. This is as far as I got. Can you help me further with it? Okay? Last point of application. So idolatry, tell your, uh, your accountability group this week, this month, as soon as you can, what your threat of idolatry is in your life. Bible study, try to study this week and get as far as you can and let me know where you got stuck in the process of studying, where you didn't know how to go any further so that I can come alongside and help you, or I can get somebody else. We've got people that are saying, hey, I want to help disciple somebody. I want to help teach somebody. I just don't know who to help. I don't know who to teach. Give us the opportunity to pair you up with somebody that can help complete that process for you and knowing how to study God's word. All right, last thing. Um, in regards to evangelism, so I think, man, when I'm looking back over what we've studied, the three things that kind of jump out to me as easy application points, um, 
looking at the idolatry part. Man, what are the idols in our life? The, the feasting on God's word part. Man, if we're not all feasting on God's word, then we can't be in harmony like we need to be. Right? Romans says this is how we this is how we grow up together and we harmonize with each other so that we're glorifying God with one voice. If half of us aren't spending time in God's word besides Sundays, man, we're not we're not harmonized like we need to be. Okay, so from an application standpoint, man, it's just been easy to me thinking back through what does our church need to get from this? We don't need to know who the two witnesses are. Right? We don't need to be able to identify those guys. We need to be able to live like those guys. Right? So from an evangelism standpoint, easy easy here. Like we're not, we're not asking you to commit to some evangelism program. We're not asking you to go door to door this week. We're not even asking you to share the gospel with this week with anybody. I'm asking you to identify one person in your life that you want to target with the gospel, someone that you will not stop sharing the gospel with till they either get saved or you become a torment to them. Man, that you are so committed to this person's salvation that you either win them to Jesus or they're glad when you die and you're gone so they don't have to hear it anymore. And that doesn't mean that you become this annoying, prideful, self-righteous voice in their life, right? Like you're not a torment because you're, you're a jerk, right? You're a torment because the message makes it, makes it torture for them. You aren't the torture. It's the message that's the torture, okay? Man, who, who could you commit to? Who's one person in your life? You know they're not saved. You know they need the gospel, and you are going to commit to them. You're going to commit to them, even if that means just praying for them right now. But you're going to commit to being the, the one who brings them to Jesus or becomes a torment to them because you're so committed to the gospel. I told you it was going to be real practical this week. Tell your, tell your accountability group something, right? Don't, don't just go home and think about something from an application standpoint this time. I'm giving you three things to actually do this week. Tell your accountability something about you this week. Tell them where you struggle from an idolatry standpoint. Number two, try to study the Bible this week if you're not currently doing it and let me know where you get to and you don't know how to go any further. Number three, identify one person in your life that you want to commit to being the person that you go after with the gospel. Three points of application. hope you can take those and, and apply those this week or at least in the coming weeks um, so that we're faithful to be doers and not just hearers only of God's word. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.